y'all. Welcome back to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. I'm your host, Heather McFadden, and this is the place where I get to walk alongside you and connect you with people and resources so you know that you don't mom alone. And in this episode number 443, I get to welcome to the show, Dr. Sandra Glan. And I think what we missed, instead of seeing that as Paul contradicting himself, is Paul goes into a culture, reads the realm, sees what their strongholds are, and says, Jesus is better. Jesus is better when it comes to delivery. He's better when it comes to being a savior. He, it's be, he's better when it comes to adoption. He's better when it comes to all the things. Dr. Glon, or as some call her, Dr. G, is a Dallas Theological Seminary professor. She teaches classes on campus and also immersion courses in Italy and Great Britain. She's written over 20 books. She is interested in so many amazing topics, including art, gender, sexual intimacy, and marriage, first century backgrounds as they relate to gender. She is a fascinating lady. And why I'm going to have her on, I'll explain in a minute. I do want to tell you, this may be an earbud episode. If you normally listen and your kids pop in and out of the car and you're like doing it that way, this may be one that you wrap presents or you take a walk and you listen to. And it's just for your ears only. The reason I'm having her on, I tell you at the beginning of the interview, I hope it encourages you to take a deep dive because her books are so amazing. One she curated is called Vindicating the Vixens. We mentioned it at the end of the episode. It is a fascinating look at several biblical characters and contextualizing their stories. Her other book that we are going to talk about today is called Nobody's mother. And you're like, Heather, this is a mom podcast. Why are you talking about nobody's mother? Well, she is referring to a goddess, Artemis, who was worshipped in Ephesus. And if you're like, what's Ephesus? Well, it's a city where the early church, when it was, you know, Jesus came, and then there were people who were believing in Jesus. And Paul is writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And in Acts 19, which we reference it tells some of those stories um, of, of the worship of Artemis. So today we are going to do a deep dive into 1 Timothy 2. And you're like, 1 Timothy. Okay, so 1 Timothy was Paul writing to Timothy. And I'm going to read the scripture that we talked through just to give some context before we even get into it. Here is the passage that we talk about. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that women should dress themselves in moderate clothing with reverence and self-control, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That phrase, saved through childbearing, has special significance for Dr. Glon, which she will explain, and means something different after the work she's done to discover who was Artemis, the goddess of that time, that the people of Ephesus worshipped, and do we maybe have a misunderstanding of who she was? I hope you find this interesting. I hope that, like I said, it encourages you to take deeper dives into scripture because I think it's fascinating and something else to think about this time of year. I don't know. Let's get right to it. Here we go. Dr. Glon, welcome to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. Great to see you, Heather. Thanks for I asking me. I mean, y'all. This is a big day. I've been so excited for this day. And y'all, get ready for your brains to get tickled. I, I'm just telling you, I do episodes on parenting. We do episodes on friendship and discipleship. This is for your own personal Bible study. We're going to go deep on a passage of scripture, but beyond that, into the historical context. And Dr. Glon, you have edited books. You've edited a magazine for a long time, and you've written this book, Nobody's Mother, um, about Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. 
But I would love, since this is a mom podcast, for you to share your mom's story and some of the backstory on why you were motivated to dig deep on this passage. Yeah, thanks for asking. So yes, the question I had to have an answer to is what does that enigmatic phrase in the New Testament, she will be saved through childbearing, mean? I had been taught that it means a woman's, woman's highest calling is mothering, parenting, and that she is sanctified through that role. And so, and I had a fantastic model in my mother. If you've seen Sound of Music, whether the Carrie Underwood version or the Julie Andrews version, that was really my mom. We made daisy chains. We rode bikes. We sang as a family. We had awesome seven-part harmony. Uh, I'm the fourth of five kids. And so that's the world I wanted. I totally embraced that understanding of the text. And the problem with that, of the the deep longing to have the life that my mother had modeled for me was when my husband and I hit the brick wall of infertility and pregnancy loss, which spanned seven years, three years of no success, followed by seven early losses and an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy, and then finally three failed adoptions before we finally had the successful adoption of our daughter. But you can imagine the spiritual crisis that was because I couldn't understand how in the world I could be a married woman pursuing what I thought was God's will for all women, uh, which tells you I hadn't thought real deeply about being single and celibate and divorced and widowed. I mean, I hadn't thought along the whole lifespan well enough. I married my high school sweetheart and I was ready to have at least four kids. And so when that didn't happen, it was not just um, an emotional, ethical crisis, you know, looking at IVF, looking at, you know, what does this mean? The biggest crisis for me was a spiritual crisis of identity. Who in the world is woman then? Why in the world would God close a womb of somebody who's ready to jump on board? And it sent me back to relook at where had I missed the boat? Where had the interpretation gone wrong? Was it Christian subculture? Was it interpretation? Was it the West? Was it Protestant? I, I had to know. And you did the work for us. How long have you been researching this topic? Oh, about a quarter of a century, like 20 to 25 years. It started um, when I was in Ephesus with my husband on an anniversary trip. And I knew that when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, in, in what we know as First Timothy, he said, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. Mm -hmm. And I knew that over in the book of Acts, Acts 19, Luke, who we think is the author of Acts, recorded two major events that happened in the city of Ephesus, one being the magic workers coming to Christ and then burning their magic books, and the other being the Artemis cult chanting for two hours in the theater, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So I knew those were major, major religious forces in Ephesus, but I had been told that Artemis really didn't have anything to do with Paul because she's a fertility goddess and that's not what was happening. So I'm standing in Ephesus, I'm looking up at the story of the city told in stone and they're showing me the Amazon women, which are, you know, girl power kind of women. Okay, so wait, I want to pause you real quick. Okay, yeah. Because sure. when you said the Amazon women came to Ephesus, in my mind, I think Amazon River and I think South America. Oh, yeah. So I had never placed, I knew, I knew the concept Amazon women, these tall women, which ironically, I am the height that you mentioned. <laughs> Five foot six, I can now okay. claim Amazon First womanhood. Qualification yeah. check. I just didn't place them in the Middle That's East. It's really funny because so many people think Amazon women are women that order something off Amazon. So <laughs> yeah, okay, so we gotta do go back and say the Amazons, we thought they were mythological women that cut off one breast so they could do warfare. They copulated with men once a year, gave the boy babies to men, and only kept the girls. And we all we all thought that was totally mythological. But if you Google Smithsonian Magazine, if you Google National Geographic, you will find that they found the graves of such women uh, around the Black Sea. And so there is a huge tradition, uh, and Ephesus is in Western Turkey. Okay. Uh, Selçuk is the little town now, but Ephesus is buried. I mean, it's it's ruins, which is great for us because uh, as about 10 to 20% of it now has been uncovered, 
we're getting this background of this place where Paul was for more than two years. He's the longest there of any other city on his missionary journeys. And it makes perfect sense. They had a number of harbors there from Ephesus. You could get the Roman road. You could get to anywhere in the empire. You could go to Spain. You could go to Egypt. And so it's it would be like camping out in New York City. It's the rich city, not the capital. Um, it's the port city. This is very strategic for the spread of the gospel. And all that to say, I am standing there looking at this freeze of the Amazons, and I'm hearing they have this connection to Artemis in the city. And I'm thinking, okay, that Amazons aren't are not connected with fertility. Yeah. So where did we get that? I got. I have to go back and relook at what century were the sources? What what was happening at the time of the earliest Christians? I don't need to know who the Amazons or Artemis was in the fourth century BC. I need to know in Paul's world who were they, and so. That launched me on a whodunit adventure that has taken a couple of decades to sort through the inscriptions, the writings in stone, the uh, the statues and what they mean, what the symbols on the statues mean, what the coins of the city mean, all of that. Uh, PhD in arts and humanities, doing my dissertation on who in the world is this Artemis and what does that have to do with the New Testament? And the little phrase, she'll be safe with childbearing. Okay, so... If y'all didn't catch it, there's a section in 1 Timothy. So just to orient you, Jesus comes. So we're doing Christmas, right? Jesus is born to Mary in Bethlehem. Jesus lives his life here on earth, his ministry, crucified, raised again. There are apostles who are with him. But then there's Paul, and he comes later. And he was first Saul, and he's persecuting the people who are saying Jesus was God, and He's saying, wow, this is bad. And then he has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He realizes, oh my goodness, Jesus was God. I've been persecuting his people. And he becomes this convert who then becomes the preacher to the Gentiles, people who were not Hebrew. And he wrote lots of letters to lots of churches. I am talking and you are the seminary professor, but. No, that's okay. Great job. I mean, it's excellent to just give the survey of the big story. And show where in the world does this Where in the in? world are we talking and yeah. why are we talking? And so Paul gives these instructions and he wrote lots of letters to churches. And even though it's First Timothy, who was he writing to? And you mentioned it quickly, but I just want to reemphasize now that we're talking. Where was Timothy and so, what yeah, was going on? Paul and yeah. Timothy have been in Ephesus as the center. They start out in the synagogue. They kind of get kicked out of the synagogue. So they get, you know, start renting out a place called the Hi Hall of Tyrannus. And so eventually Paul plans to leave Timothy there pretty much long term. And he's already planning to go to Macedonia. And he actually sends Timothy ahead to Macedonia as, as a sort of advance team. And he, But he's planning to close down Ephesus. But then these silver workers that are making souvenirs for the Artemis temple, basically there's huge tourism in the city related to their goddess. And the silver workers are ticked because Paul's gospel ministry among the Gentiles is hurting them economically. And so they rush into the theater, which is still there, and it held like 25,000 people. And for two hours, there's, there's this ruckus just chanting, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And you notice they're not chanting great as Artemis. Like, I wouldn't say great as Jesus of Dallas. So, you know, that's a hint that the pantheon and the Greek world is different from our monotheism. But anyway... So Paul's like, I need to leave tomorrow <laughs> and checks out pretty quickly, catches up with Timothy at some point, sends Timothy back as probably a permanent role there. And he writes him a letter that we know as first Timothy, that it's Paul to Timothy saying that's I left you there. You got some serious false doctrine there. And we again, we know from Luke's record of some events that happened in the city of Ephesus that magic has a major hold on the city and so does Artemis. And in the last couple of years, I've made the connection that those two actually aren't different. I had always sort of seen them as separate spiritual forces, but I found some inscriptions that had magic relating to Artemis. In fact, one of them says, uh, do not piss on this grave or the goddess will come after you basically. <laughs> it's like we're trying to place Paul's instructions to our church now. 
And we can't grasp that this was, every time we read scripture, right? It's who wrote it, who was it written to, what type of literature is it? And what I think you bring to the table is what were the social pieces? And we have always been told by commentators that Artemis is a fertility goddess and some of Paul's instructions to the church were related to the fact that there was prostitution happening at her temple. And what it sounds like from what I read in your book is this is a poor game of telephone that commentators pass down from one historian (laughs) to another. Good analogy. And so you in doing your research, you're like, oh, wait, because people at this point might be like, why does it matter if she's a fertility goddess or not? And we have to recognize like Artemis and in this cult, Artemis is a goddess. This is a mythical being that held- They think she's real. Yeah. What? They, they think, think she's she, real. They yeah. think she's real. So tell us who you found her to be. Y'all know I love connections. So part of me thinks it's really cool that one of our sponsors for this episode is Seven Weeks Coffee. As we're talking about this time in Ephesus and Paul is writing to a culture that is wanting to be saved through childbearing and we as a community as a culture in America could partner with seven weeks to not only consume excellent world-class coffee, but also protect life. And with each purchase, seven weeks donates 10% of every sale to pregnancy centers. By the end of the month, they have raised over $250,000 to support over 700 pro-life pregnancy centers and you make a difference and you impact this mission simply by drinking seven weeks coffee. So if you want to know why is it called seven weeks, well, at seven weeks, a baby is about the size of a coffee bean and it's about the same time a mother has her first ultrasound. And so that is why they are donating 10% of every sale to pregnancy care centers to support their ultrasound services. If you want to know about their coffee, if you're a coffee drinker, it is organically farmed, pesticide-free, mold-free, sourced from the top 1% to 2% of coffee beans in the world. It is direct trade coffee, which means it's even more ethically sourced than fair trade. The farmers are paid 300% more than what fair trade requires. So this company is pro-abundant life from the farmer to the mother. As uh, laws are impacting choices for moms, this company feels they want to be there to support women. They want to be there to help them with the life of their child. So when you drink seven weeks coffee, you will be directly helping that mission, helping a pregnancy care center in need and have impact saving lives simply through your morning cup of coffee. They want to ask you one question. Will you let your coffee serve a greater purpose? So go to sevenweekscoffee.com Use the code DMA to save 10% off store-wide. That's sevenweekscoffee.com. Use the code DMA to get 10% off store-wide. So we were right, our impulse was right to suspect there's a major Artemis force going on in the background of the letter. Where we missed the boat was she's the opposite of a fertility goddess. She is totally into celibacy. And then if you think about Wonder Woman, who is based on Artemis, you know, the idea of her being a prostitute or of her doing temple prostitution, you're like, yeah, no. And and so in some ways, the the modern story of Wonder Woman actually captures it better. The problem is Artemis actually wasn't that favorable to women. She was just as likely to kill a woman or a a child as she was to kill a man. And so it wasn't really so much that it was girl power, maybe as much as independence. And in Ephesus in particular, while Artemis is a hunter and she's a virgin from antiquity on, but in Ephesus, she takes on the role of a midwife and she's super strict into virginity, but she also feels sorry for or mercy for women who are giving birth, which is the number one fear of women, because if you know somebody who's had a C-section or preeclampsia, like they're dead. 
in this world. And so everybody yeah, back knows in the ancient somebody, world. Yeah, yeah. In the ancient world, there wasn't anesthesia. Correct. There wasn't modern medicine. Nope. And so this There's is no C-section. No. Mm-hmm. And so everybody knows somebody may everybody has a family member. Probably you had to have five children just to keep zero population growth. And so there are all kinds of incentives coming from the emperors because they need an army. So in the shadow of this goddess of virginity, you you have the opposite of temple prostitution. In fact, I haven't found anything in any of my studies of the world at the time that suggests there was any kind of. It's fact, gonna be. It's like it. a. It's like a scary story. It's like <laughs> Doctor Glan, tell us a scary story. Yes. Yes, and then Artemis. She's this. <laughs> she's this warrior with an arrow. Like she is. she's a hunter. Yeah. So I suspect that when Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he talks about the flaming darts of the devil, the flaming arrows of the devil, that could totally be casting shade on Artemis. One of her names is Savior. One of her names is Lord. One of her names is God. One of her names is First Throne. One of her names is Manifest. All those words show up. Some, Actually, most of them show up in the first chapter First Timothy, this personal letter that's written to his protege that he's left there. And usually Paul begins his letters with grace and peace to you from our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not this one. This one, he loads up all the titles of Artemis in the first three verses. And so, again, Paul doesn't use the word Savior very often unless he's writing to the Ephesians. And then he, he pulls it out because that's, that is one of her names in their city. I thought that was super interesting and and you pointing out like why he doesn't directly talk about Artemis and say her name. Yeah. Paul's a good Jew. He he probably has never uttered the name of any god other than Yahweh. Than Yahweh. And actually he wouldn't have said yeah, he Yahweh, wouldn't have... right? Yeah. He would have found a, another way to say it. But Luke, who is writing Acts, uh Timothy whose parents are Greek, there Luke has lots of uh, Luke Acts has lots of references to other gods. Herm- they got accused, you know, Paul's Hermes because Hermes is the speaker. And he- he's just not afraid to say their names because he's a Gentile. But you will never, ever in any of Paul's writings see anything other than a reference to gods made with hands, gods who aren't really gods. Uh, he has his way of referring to the pantheon, but never by name. You only get one set of skin. So as these holidays are approaching and maybe uh, with the drier weather at this time of year, you are noticing the toll it takes on your skin. Well, I want to introduce you to a new product to me that I think is really cool because I love the science behind one skin. They have this groundbreaking peptide, OS1, which is scientifically proven. Uh, There's lots of research that they sent me that it's not dealing with the surface level, but it's actually getting to the accumulation of age senescent cells. These are the cells that are the culprit behind your skin aging. So what is the magic of one skin? So OS1 has, this peptide, has been proven in the lab to actually reduce the biological age of your skin by several years. So not only is it preventing, but it is slowing down the aging of your skin and leaving you with healthier, more hydrated, glowing skin. I think it's really cool. They've done, like I said, a lot of studies, even a third-party 12-week clinical study that showed that this peptide not only, like I said, reversed the skin's biological age, but it strengthened the skin barrier. It had better skin health markers. It diminished the visible signs of aging. Wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users. I know there's a lot of skincare options out there, but I think that the cool aspects of the science and the research behind one skin And the fact that it gets to the root cause, not just covering up on the surface of the one skin that you have is really, really great. So one skin is the world's first skin longevity company. One skin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root cause of aging so skin feels and appears younger. It's time to get started with your new face, eye, and body routine at a discounted rate today. New customers get 15% off with the code DMA at oneskin.co. 
That's 15% off oneskin.co with the code DMA. New Year is approaching. Now is the best time to invest in your skin. Age healthy with one skin. So back to her being a midwife, I also found it interesting because my boys have taken Latin and part of that is studying Greek god structures. And so when I was reading where Artemis comes from and her kind of heritage, who her parents are and her parents' experience I think was a big part of why she's this midwife. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, her dad is Zeus, the big daddy god. I mean, he's the number one. And her mother is Leto. Now, Leto is not married to Zeus. Zeus is married to Hera. And this is part of why Artemis becomes the natal city. Because when Leto is now pregnant with twins, the world is not a friendly place because nobody wants to give her refuge because they don't want to hack off Hera. But she finally finds this little grove near Ephesus and she gives birth to Artemis. But then she, so Artemis is the firstborn. That's significant, I think. Later when Paul writes, Adam was first, I think he's correcting an origin story with the real origin story. Um, So Adam, Adam first, not Artemis. Artemis is born first, and she watches her mother writhe for nine days, giving birth to Apollo. And after that, she goes to Daddy Zeus and says, there is no way I want to ever go through that. Please make me immune to Aphrodite's arrows. And he says, granted. And then what's interesting to me is that I did a search just recently to find out how often does the name Apollo, her little kid twin brother, how often does his name show up in Ephesus? I found zero inscriptions. It's like, this is not his city. He got, he got Delos. That's the city that claims him. But So it's like Zeus's side hustle with Leto. She gets pregnant. She has Artemis near Ephesus, but then Apollo's born somewhere else nine days later. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the question is, does she move before she finally? Nobody really says. All we huh. know is we know Artemis is born in Ephesus. They have an annual celebration. They have parades. They have a month named after her. And her temple is one of the seven wonders of the world. People come from all over the empire to see it because it's like nothing you've ever seen. It It's like four times the size of the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens, which if you think about the year when that would have been built, it's just a marvel of human engineering. Yeah, I was saying, I mean, I think some of the columns were 60 feet tall. They were, yeah, just ginormous. Yeah. I, can't, I can't even fathom that and how big it was. But then I thought it was interesting, again, going back to some of the scriptures we read and knowing context, it was built on a marsh. So then what happens when you build a giant building on a marsh? Yeah, well, a couple things. First of all, it does a remarkable job of surviving earthquakes, but it does a really terrible job of surviving century after century. And so for the longest time, they couldn't find it. Uh, and I, I'm told the story is that one of the British archaeologists from the British Museum in the 1800s, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, his wife had come to visit him. And they they followed some of the ancient writers who talked about the parade route and realized it was outside of the city proper. Uh, and also that there had it had been on the riverfront and that had all been silted in. Today you have to drive, I don't know, seven or more miles to to the ocean uh, because it's not, it's all silted in from the, the river, which is why there were a couple different harbors in Ephesus. It was silting in even back at the time of Paul. And then they have since built a, t- a church on top of it. Yeah, there's one lone temple, a column that's been cobbled back together from stones that were on the ground. Some of the columns got taken off to be used in Islamic spaces. Some of them, some of them are in uh, Hagia Sophia, which was a Christian church for thousand years in Istanbul, uh, Byzantium. The, the, a number of different places you see the columns that were recycled yeah. from Artemis's temple, and. She, since she's not this goddess of fertility, she is this virgin. I didn't you say there's a church of the Virgin Mary? There is a church of the Virgin Mary, yeah, adjacent. And the Christians ended up the fourth, there's a fourth big council in the early church, fourth century, where they gather and they declare that Mary is it's a fancy word, theotokos, which is mother of God. And we Protestants tend to 
recoil at that thinking they're over-exalting Mary, and we miss that, no, this is a statement about Jesus. They're declaring that Jesus was God, and the Virgin has supplanted the Virgin on the very, she's celebrated uh, there on the very space where a false Virgin uh, once reigned. And the local tradition, which is impossible to prove, but the local tradition is that the Apostle John lived out his days in Ephesus, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are written to communities near the city, and that uh, Mary lived out her days, that John took care of her, and they both lived to a very ripe old age, and that he took care of her somewhere near there. And so there is a, a house that's built on a space where people have made a pilgrimage for centuries to remember Mary's being the mother of God. Mm. To me, that information just solidified why it mattered that you did this work to figure out who Artemis is. Like the fact that she was this exalted virgin and Christ came from a virgin. It's like we kind of need to sort out who's who and what's what. And I think we cannot grasp that fully, that there was a whole culture that their well-being was dependent on the worship of this goddess that they exalted and she's this warrior entity yeah yeah i mean i liken it often to bethlehem and how they identify with jesus and you know this year accepted of course because we're in the mid you know people don't know bethlehem is actually in palestinian yeah yes thank you for clarifying yeah yeah you have to like go through a gate yeah but Mm -hmm. normally you have the the church of the uh, the nativity and that's that is the site of uh, christmas eve around the world the cameras are zoomed in there on Bethlehem because that's where Jesus was born. And so in the same way, uh, not because Artemis is God, but in the same way that the city identified itself with the birth event uh, and was the place of pilgrimage for people to come and honor her. And so childbearing uh, was very, very connected to people's psyche relating to Artemis. It was thought that Every woman, when she went to give birth, would go to her temple and ask her to either deliver them safely or kill them quickly, but not leave them, you know, writhing for nine days before they died. And it was thought that her arrows could euthanize. And so, again, you would you would rather die of a euthanizing arrow than just writhe for days and days before you finally expire in the absence of a C-section. So it's the number one fear of women, and it's the number one reason women in Ephesus are going to Artemis's temple. And it's so, I think what Paul is doing when he talks about a woman, well, first of all, he, he says Adam is first, and the woman was deceived. I don't think we should be reading into that, that all men are first over women, or that women are more easily deceived. I don't think that's what Paul is arguing at all. He's, he's correcting their wrong origin story with the actual origin story and actually I think equalizing men and women in a place that you might be tempted to think well women are better if you know Artemis is our goddess you're like no actually it's not that she was a a woman's god though like there are lots of male and female worshipers and again I liken that sort of the Virgin Mary Virgin Mary isn't someone that just women venerate women and men uh, equally do that. And the same was true of Artemis. We found lots and lots of names in the inscriptions of men named after Artemis. So their parents are honoring the goddess in how they've named their sons. There's actually one reference in the in the New Testament of a guy named Artemis, which means gift of Artemis in Titus. So that in and of itself, again, is a flag for us of how prevalent Artemis worship was in the culture for men and women alike. But there's also this huge connection to childbirth. Mm-hmm. And so I think that helps us understand what Paul is saying. She will be saved through childbirth if she continues in the faith. But he's not talking about she'll be saved from hell. But at also, which started my journey, not talking about she'll be sanctified by a nuclear family. That but like yeah. we have to recognize that word saved again was so important at that time. And and Artemis being the savior, he's saying, no, you have a savior. It's Christ Jesus, your Lord, not Artemis, your Lord. Like they use that. We think of that as a male word, but there was a female version. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said it because I don't translate it lady, which is typically the counterpart to Lord because lady in English 
can mean lady driver. Right, it can right, mean right. look lady, but can also mean are you being a lady? You know, are you yeah. crossing your legs appropriately? It holds a lot yeah. of, yeah. It, it means too much. So I translate mm-hmm. it as lordess because that is how, but there are other translators who just translate it lord. Sometimes it has a feminine ending. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they, they even use the masculine ending of lord on that word uh, in the Greek. So she gets them both. It was very much a title of sovereignty. It's also important to recognize, like we said, there was a belief when you're reading First Timothy that there's a lot of prostitution going on and how often it was virgins who would go to the temple. It was not a sexualized thing. Yeah, it was really probably the opposite. We see other phrases in Timothy, don't taste, don't touch, don't marry. Paul actually says, I want the young women to marry, which suggests they're not. And that's the opposite advice he gives to the Corinthians, which again flags, there must be something local happening here. And I love something that scholar N.T. Wright said is basically we tend to become like what we worship. And I suspect that the reason there are so many single women in this church, that there are so many single women in this church that Paul has to divide the widows later in the letter. He has to divide them into three groups. Yeah, say that. The younger ones, I want them to marry. Yeah. Say that again. He takes the widows and he divides them into three groups because I'm guessing someone listening thinks a widow is an older woman whose husband died. And it could be, but the word widow at this time is broad enough to mean a single gal that's never married. It's a basically a without a man woman. Now, far and wide, you know, by far most of the women are going to have lost a husband, but also this is probably the early roots of nuns. And uh, the early church had a lot of virgin martyrs. And some of that, we tend to read that through the eyes of purity culture and just think they're so into purity and virginity and that's where they get their identity. Actually, it was, it was the opposite uh, in that they were seeing it as agency. If the, if the emperors just want an army so they can go after power, they're refusing to marry and have sons to give to the emperors to go be violent. It was an act of civil disobedience in a lot of cases. So they take marriage vows. They take a vow to Christ and follow him the rest of their days. And you, you'll see Paul mentioning, actually, I want to I want to limit that to the older women because the younger women, they've made the vow and then they're going to want to break it. And He's not talking about a marriage vow. He's talking about a vow to live a celibate life and serve the church for the rest of your life. So interesting. And you saying that in Corinthians, he gave an a different instruction. Yeah. Because his instruction there is what? Well, in Corinth, at, at least in the church, you look at all kinds of immorality. So if people were maybe undersexed in, in the church in Ephesus and, and the women are not trying to attract men and he's telling them you need to think about marriage and value that uh, and have children over in Corinth, it looks like he's saying y'all are overemphasizing this and you need to consider being celibate. Celibacy is a gift. Uh, it's a greater gift, even uh, if, you, if you're like Paul. Uh, so, again, two very different cultural contexts. And I think what we've missed, instead of seeing that as Paul contradicting himself, is Paul goes into a culture, reads the room, sees what their strongholds are, and says, Jesus is better. Jesus is better when it comes to delivery. Is he's better when it comes to being a savior. He it's be, he's better when it comes to adoption. He's better when it comes all the things, uh, and that's going to look different in different contexts. And and our our takeaway, one of our takeaways from that is, how am I reading my culture? Yeah. How am I living in such a way that shows love and devotion and holiness without self righteousness? Even the scripture which gets. Again, I'd heard some commentator talk about women shouldn't adorn themselves with gold and pearls and all of those outward. Same passage. Yeah, yeah, the same passage, but the piece of the modesty kind of, and don't wear all those things because keep your head covered. And it was told because the prostitutes, they were doing that or they, this fertility goddess, it's like not, that was so not true. His goal was not a sexualized message again. Correct. Yeah. That does it. I mean, Paul does say he wants them to be holy, but you're right. When he's talking about hair and gold and pearls, he's talking about flashing your socioeconomic status. He's not talking about 
dressing suggestively in a in a public setting. Certainly, he would object to that, I think. But but we've we've made it about just obsessing on women's dress and put it all on women. And then we quoted Paul, and I think Paul is much more concerned with. Uh, maybe if you're in a context of, of poverty, you leave your Gucci bag at home or, you know, whatever the equivalent coach, whatever you're buying these days, spade, you know, don't, don't flash that. The church is a place of the equal and that's where a slave can be an elder and men and women are ministry partners and they are interdependent. They need each other. They need to love one another. And, uh, the rich pay the bills of the poor when they need to rather than making somebody else feel dishonored because they don't have the gold, they don't have the pearls. And pearls would have been a big deal in a harbor city. You have a lot more access to oysters. <laughs> and so I, my understanding of Ephesus is that wealth is prevalent in this city. That, that wealth, was, wealth was associated with these servants of Artemis, these and Yeah, it's certainly associated priests. with godliness. Yeah. Um, both it, probably in how they dress, but also imagine a world where you don't have a municipal building that's paid for by your taxes with bonds. You have a rich person who says, oh, we need a gymnasium. Well, if you put a, my name in big letters, it's a little bit like what our stadiums are starting to yeah. be, right? We're not mm-hmm. Wrigley Field anymore. We're, we're starting to become whatever product. And it's not that different. It would, ju- would have just been a person's name rather than, you know, a Liberty Center or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So before we have to go, I do want you to talk about something you told me, even Paul's choice of words. He's he's an artist in his choice of words. And you've already mentioned that he's an, an ultimate Jew. He would not use a God's name. Also talk about his use of terms related to leadership positions in the church. I really appreciated when we were talking the other night that you were like, he would have hated the term servant leader. Yeah. Because, because Paul called himself a servant, actually yeah. a slave. He chose the lowest title he could find to describe what he saw as church office. So the word deacon means servant. Elder means old guy. I think widow was an office. We have a fifth century ordination prayer for the office of widow. This is not a new thing. Again, very much like nuns. And widow in Paul's world is the most vulnerable woman possible. She does not have social security. She does not have a 401k plan. She is dependent on either her children or the church or to beg. And so Paul has chosen the most powerless terms he can find to let those be the terms for Christian leaders. Uh, the org chart, the organization chart he would build would not be top down. It would be bottom up. There would be a foundation of serving. And then you build on that by service patterned after a God who would stoop to wash poop off disciples' feet. Who would choose a baby's body. Yeah. To be right. born into. In I mean, the most trough. humble. Yeah. 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 In a cave or, or wherever. In a slobber. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I also appreciate that you have been vulnerable enough to say your own journey in learning. And so tell me, how has all of this study impacted your reading of the scripture? Well, first of all, it's easy to doubt that Paul is anything but a misogynist if you only look at his words through Western eyes. And how can you do otherwise? I mean, we come to the text who we are. And when you say things like, Adam was first, woman's deceived, woman's saved through childbearing, you're like, that sounds like he's a jerk. And it's only because we don't know that the opposite is happening, that Paul is elevating men and women together in partnership, and he's addressing the number one fear his new Gentile converts have, which is, no, you can't go to the temple anymore and get that security, but the security you have is better. And he's actually very pastoral and caring for their needs. We just we just are so far removed from it that we don't get that. So that's the first thing that I came away with, is the more I dug, the more I saw Paul's heart and loved my brother for what he was seeking to do. And I think the other thing is, in the in my world, the academic world of looking at the scriptural text, there are a lot of people who don't think the book of what we call the book of First Timothy could have been written by Paul because he uses words like savior, which he doesn't typically use in other places. And his whole vocabulary is different uh, from his other letters. 
But again, the more I dug, the more I thought, well, he's borrowing from his Artemis dictionary. He's he's borrowing from a different part of his word range. In the same way that I could say the word kryptonite to you and you would know I'm talking about Superman. Well, that doesn't mean that's a normal word in my vocabulary. Uh, I think Paul is pulling out a lot of different words that were that were Artemis related. And so I came away, interestingly enough, from a so-called secular PhD program, even more convinced of the biblical authorship, uh, which was kind of ironic. Yeah. To me, it's inspiring. Um, I also found it interesting that when you teach your students in the classroom, you can present an idea and exegetically work through the scripture. But when you give them the history, you notice the switch. Talk about that. I did know. So it used to be that, so I teach a course, uh, a seminary on those quote hard verses about women, right? What in the world do they mean? And continuing to do deep dives into the culture to understand what the head coverings are and all of that. And what I noticed is as I would find this information, my students often would just say, look, the church has interpreted this way for 2000 years. So who am I to differ? And they couldn't even relook at the text. But in my deep dive, I mentioned the ordination prayer for widows and the office of widow. Most of them have never heard of the office of widow. And they think that no women led anything until 1970s United States. Simply not true. But that's how would we know anything else? And so I noticed that my students had to learn the history of women and men partnering together through the ages before they could then sit down with a biblical text and go, maybe saved through childbearing isn't about the nuclear family. But they had to know the history before they could even open their minds up to relook at the biblical text. Because they felt, I guess they felt like they were betraying history to even consider. Well, and it's like, well, this is the tradition. I'm putting quotations because you even differentiate tradition from other words. But this is the tradition and so you must be presenting a feminist agenda right? and reinterpreting the tradition. And it's like, no, 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 no. The tradition is newer <laughs> than <Correct>. the history. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The quote tradition is newer. Yeah, you, we ha- I trace in, in one chapter, yeah, just some of the men who we have loved through the centuries. And I, yeah, I love Augustine when he's talking about the Trinity, but Augustine on women is a sexually broken man and not our truest guide. And so some of the church fathers have not been people that have had a high view of women, and it's affected their look at the text. And uh, this is why we need people from all cultures helping us. We need people from dead Christians and living Christians. We need men and women looking at the text. There are faithful interpreters all through the years that we don't typically hear about that did have a high view of men and women partnering together. And the more we uncover the history, which we're getting more of it honestly, because a lot more women are in history departments, and there hadn't been a whole lot of interest really in digging deeply in the history of women in the church. Uh, And the visual record, the mosaics, the frescoes, all of that is informing our understanding of what women really did do through the centuries. And what's appearing is a beautiful picture of gender parity, of men and women partnering together. It wasn't just the boys club and the women were all at home. It was men and women partnering for gospel work. I can't think of a better way to end that. Um, We will connect to all your things. And y'all, we didn't get into it today, but if you get uh, Dr. Glan's book, Dr. G, her book, Nobody's Mother, you can read about Artemis's many breasts. (laughs) (laughs) So-called breasts. So-called bulbous appendages appendages (laughs) and what they actually probably are and so much more y'all you're gonna feel like a genius by the end of this book i promise and thank you again dr g for all your research and your time today also can you um do a quick plug for your vindicating the vixens Okay, sure. Vindicating the Vixens was a group project of men and women from across the spectrum of views on what women can and can't do in church. It's not just, quote, the liberal feminists (laughs) coming to you. It's very conservative men contributing. And basically, we're looking at women who have we think have been either wrongly vilified or in the case of like Mary, Protestants have just sort of ignored her. But you look at a Tamar, you look at a Bathsheba, and you go, the woman at the well is another example. Yeah, she had five husbands, 
Uh, and people say the one she has now isn't her own, so she's shacking up. Well, maybe a concubine because she'd been widowed so many times. So it relooks really at how the church has maybe seen them historically in a more favorable light and taken a second look at vindicating them. And 100% of the profits of that project go to benefit the International Justice Mission. Which I love. I love that. I love that connection. So thank you. Thank you again. Super, super grateful for your time. Thanks for weathering the storm and here we- with me. <laughs> We made it through the storm. (laughs) Jesus is better. He is better than anything we go to for our care, for our deliverance, for our saving. And I pray that this time of year as you're heading into the Christmas season, that you can make time and space to be reminded of that, of, of how Jesus is the one who brings us and fills us with that need we have to get back to the garden, that need we have, that hole we have for perfect connection with God, that need we have for a place of connection with other people. And so I'm going to pray over us right now. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are so kind to us, that you didn't leave us separated from you, that you didn't leave us to our um, false attempts of trying to save ourselves or lean on other things to save us, but that you brought us the perfect Savior through Jesus. I pray that we would turn to him on a daily basis, that we would recognize through our the Holy Spirit in us that you go with us, that we are in Christ and that you are in us and that we find safety and security in that knowledge, that we can keep a mindset of eternity that we can recognize that our momentary trials, that's what they are. They're just a moment um, that you are with us in a challenge with a kid today. You are with us in our marriages. You are with us and that you are the one who gives us our value and our worth. You are the one who tells us where we matter. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, y'all. Thanks for joining me and Dr. G. And I will see you back here next week for our last episode of the year. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Adios. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Don't Mom Alone podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more people and more resources to help remind you that you're not alone, head over to don'tmomalone.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guests. Most importantly, I want you to know the good news the great news that you're not alone because God has promised to always be with you. With faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again, Jesus said when he left, he was going to leave a helper, a comforter to be with us. God in us, moms, that's superpower. So while you're washing dishes at your kitchen sink, while you're driving to and from work, while you're feeding that baby late into the night, while you're cleaning sticky floors, God promises to be just as present with you as when you're worshiping in a church pew. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that's good news. Have a great day.